It's Wednesday, the 4th of July, but the only thing on my mind right now is the week of soccer that came and the week of soccer that's coming, because World Cup is entering its home stretch. See, July 4th actually means we're just 11 days away from the World Cup final, and that means we're that much closer to all of this wrapping up to... All of these games that preceded that mad rush of chaos when every day was four, six, or eight games packed into 24 hours. When all of that will lead to just one one team standing on the podium holding the cup. And right now it's a great opportunity to pause because the last bits of that chaos have past. All of those previous uh, group games have led to this past week, and starting with Saturday and Sunday, teams were gradually and then quickly eliminated. It's relatively quiet right now on this Wednesday morning. Every once in a while, a car drives up the street or the snoring of my French bulldog here on the couch rises to a more than perceptible volume, or the uh, orchestrated soundtrack music that my neighbor likes to play when he's working will reach certain crescendos that almost feel like notes of apprehension. It reminds me of the apprehension on Saturday when France and Argentina met in a knockout game that I believed was the best opportunity for Argentina to shine. And while they did, France was also there to shine. And they would not be denied. And behind a unbelievably impressive young man uh, named Mbappe, a 19-year-old with the future ahead of him, France not only took the lead to win the game, but did so after falling behind and showed amazing resilience. And Mbappe was a huge factor, scoring two goals in a matter of minutes and providing uh, the spark that I think really made the difference in France winning the game. I'm sure that pundits and others will argue points and factors that they believe were the reasons for uh, why the way the game turned out and whether or not it had to do with uh, Argentina having a better opportunity. But the results showed that two great teams shine, and that was a match more than worth watching, no matter what your feelings about the score were. But there wasn't really a lot of time to stop or reflect on the amazement of the France and Argentina game because Portugal and Uruguay were due up soon and I had groceries to get and then I had to uh, take care of a few things because I had a great invitation from my friend DJ to visit with him and his family and watch the Portugal game, 
which uh, his wife is Portuguese and a huge fan and was rooting for her home team. So I joined them for a nice celebration and snacks, but it was a really difficult game to watch because Uruguay was very strong. Their goals early were both textbook, whether it was the initial header or a beautiful cross that led to a nice, very square shot to take the 2-0 lead. And it was great to see Portugal fight back and get a goal in to uh, achieve that process of making things work towards a goal and then achieving that goal. But it was only one goal, and it was clear that it wasn't going to be enough. And for us watching, it was, you know, a validation of just how strong Uruguay is and a recognition that Portugal had gotten as far as they had through the amazing efforts of uh, Ronaldo. And while the team, in many ways, stepped up more in this game, there were too many times that you could see that Ronaldo was doing the most work and that he's human. It's going to take a toll. It was clear with Argentina earlier and uh, the struggle for Messi to get the support he needed. And it was something that we could see reflected almost immediately after in this game. Because despite Portugal's best efforts, when they needed to, they couldn't give Ronaldo the things he needed in order to be that successful. And there was discussion about what this means for his future and will he be back for the next cup. And I thought he answered it uh, wisely by saying what matters is that there's a young group of teams or a young group of players on this team that have the ability to be part of the foundation, maybe even play a role as cornerstones for that next squad four years from now, making its run for the cup. And by pointing to these highlights for the future, he was able to say, I'm not going to make this discussion about me and where I'll be with the Portuguese national team. But more importantly, where I think Portugal will be four years from now and where they can be in their pursuit of the cup now that this run has ended. The Spain and Russia game were a different story completely. Spain was the favorite, given their uh, recent World Cup wins and their style of play, both professional, patient, composed. And uh, both before they took their 1-0 lead and even after, that was a quality that they displayed um, brilliantly. Russia was the upstart, and they have not been given much expectation, much support during this World Cup. They're seen as the host nation, so there's a belief that they can ride what's known as a lucky streak that the host nation team is often able to accomplish. But it was believed that this would be the end of their run against a team like Spain. And somehow Russia fought back for that 1-1 tie. And we're able to wait 
almost not pushing any further than achieving its high and settling for penalty kicks after the two extended time regulations had run out. And penalty kicks are where they found their success, and it changed the tone of the cup, much like I think the uh, play of Japan advancing because of the uh, fair play policy. Ooh, firecracks in the distance. Seems I am reflecting while others are preparing for tonight's excitement. But it was another moment, again, like the Japan fair play moment. This moment when a team chose to play to its strengths, which was patience and a strong defense, and wait for uh, a one-on-one situation in the penalty kicks where they believed they had the best opportunity to win. It's a strategy that worked, but it doesn't fall within the... uh, traditional beliefs that are held by World Cup veterans and more likely the FIFA organization and the announcers and those who are used to soccer that has been played a very specific set of ways up until now. It's an example of change and it's probably an example of how some teams will approach their opponents in the future. It might not be known as the most beautiful or classic ways for a team to advance to the next round or to overcome a uh, a team who has strengths that seem very obvious and would generally make them the more likely to win. How it will affect the cup in the future? Well, <laughs> if I knew the answers to that, I would be buying lottery tickets. And so would everyone else. But the watching... The learning and witnessing the moment and what it will bring about, that's our job as the fans, as the witnesses, and for those of us who choose to record it as the, uh, well, maybe historians, maybe just note takers. Croatia and Denmark was another classic opportunity to see a traditional powerhouse, Denmark, facing off against a um, a phenomenal, it's probably the best word to use to describe uh, Croatia. Croatia had really been on a tear, not only leading up to the cup, but from its first game, really made a statement that they were uh, a strong force that were going to carve their way as far into the tournament as possible. And the only thing that might stop them is luck. Now, the greatest challenge is that, like great champions, all of the uh, powerhouses, Denmark being among them, have relied on luck and benefited from it in the past, especially when it seemed like the team that should win was about to succeed. Luck plays a part so often and has for these powerhouses. So all of Croatia's gumption was really going to be put to the test because even if Denmark didn't perform, luck might play a role. But that wasn't the case. 
and after a draw and a very contentious uh, extended play the move into penalty kicks was just as tense as the uh, Russia game that preceded it and for both Denmark and Croatia I think the surprises were evident both during and after the uh, penalty kicks. And I don't have to say what the announcers were saying. You can go back and watch that footage. But there was a sense that some of the momentum that had been seen from Croatia was diminishing. And that while it was a win for them against Denmark, that it wasn't the dominant win that the... uh, pundits had been expecting and that they had downgraded Croatia's potential to advance beyond their next game based on their performance against Denmark. And that was my biggest takeaway, that sometimes a win wasn't always a win. And it makes me chuckle because I have to uh, at least allude to the influence of the Alexi Lalas ranking system that they've been showing on the World Cup today before and after broadcasts for the games. And the arguments made by some of his co-announcers who will ask, well, how is it that a team that's on this list can move up and down without even having played? And he'll make his own arguments, which I'm not even going to attempt to paraphrase. But it was something that I thought was important to keep in mind with Croatia advancing, that this wasn't a dominant win and that it actually had created more questions uh, than it had answered. And that Croatia's next test will really define whether or not the opinions held about them before are uh, true and hold as strong. Ooh, that was a good firework. Or, just like that firework, if they can still be the unexpected bang that's going to go further than just the next game. Brazil versus Denmark was a really exciting opportunity to see Mexico, who had really made a statement after their Uh, victory over Germany, but then struggled in their next match, were looking for the chance to move on for the first time out of the quarterfinals. Brazil was looking for not only their chance to move out of the quarterfinals, but an opportunity to not only showcase what they can do, but to watch their star shine. Neymar had been questionable leading up to the cup and had not had a dynamic performance in the earlier games. But in this game, right after the second half began, a beautiful cross that bypassed one Brazilian attacker and looked like it might be a missed opportunity until Neymar slid down extended his right foot and with just a very expert level of touch pushed the ball into the net for a 1-0 lead 
And that seemed to make the difference for the momentum in the game. Mexico fought and struggled, and they played well, but it almost seemed like an eventuality for Brazil to pick up their second goal and to hold a commanding lead until the final whistle. Locally, news stations were talking to fans who had gathered in downtown San Francisco at the Civic Center to watch the game on a big screen TV. And a Mexico fan who was leaving stopped to speak with the reporters and told them that while they were disappointed by the loss, many Mexican fans, herself included, would be rooting for Brazil going forward. And her explanation got a little lost, I think because of people shouting in the background and the excitement of the game just ending. But it seemed that she felt there was a connection between Mexico and Brazil, and that that was a connection that would provide a lot of support for Brazil for Mexico's fans in the next rounds, which for Brazil will be this Friday morning. The Japan-Belgium game was actually much more difficult for me to watch. Japan had been a really impressive upstart who had unfortunately been stuck with a label that referred to the fair play rules that FIFA had more recently instituted that allowed Japan to advance based more on their schedule and points than on the number of wins that they had. This caused controversy when they did not seem to be playing at their full strength in their last group stage game. And that was something that they would have to overcome in order to prove that they deserved to be in the quarterfinals. They started out strong with two early goals and the momentum appeared to be on their side. But Belgium was patient and persistent and soon they had notched their first goal and then it was almost like a crescendo or a tidal wave Belgium pressured and pressured and then a second goal and then finally a third came and it was heartbreaking to see that gradually Japan slower in step feeling the almost inevitable or eventuality that Belgium was creating it it was wearing on them and Belgium's persistence wore down any chances Japan might have had left to either create a draw and go into extra time or penalty kicks or to even try and take the lead once Belgium persevered you could see Japan's fans doing what they had been doing since their first World Cup appearance a tradition they carry on 
by walking through the stands and picking up trash. I'm sure that after a impressive lead and a shocking loss, it was a very reflective moment for Japan. And I couldn't help but think that if I was a fan there in the stands at that game, I might take as long as I needed picking up trash and thinking about all the ways that this would be both a reminder and an inspiration for four years from now and the next chance. already on my way to work when I received the notification that Sweden had scored the lone goal in its match against Switzerland. And to be honest, I didn't have much of a reaction. I had watched the first half of the match before leaving for work. And while I was, I couldn't help but notice that there was something about the precision in Sweden that really differentiated itself from the lack of step that I was witnessing in Switzerland. Switzerland had been very impressive up to this point, but whether it was fatigue or some other factor, in this match against Sweden, I only saw the efficiency and effectiveness of Sweden's gameplay because of the lack of those same qualities in Switzerland's uh, performance on the field. It didn't leave me with much else to say, but I am curious to see how that match will affect Sweden's next game and whether or not it provides... uh, affirmation for the style that they used or if it's going to encourage them to continue creating changes that reflect and match their opponent. was as much about the goals that were scored as it was the fouls that were and were not called. Kane was an early example of the amount of abuse that a player has to go through before they might get uh, a penalty call that not quite redeems but rewards the amount of pain and suffering that that player had to go to before the opportunity is uh, available to them. Kane took full advantage and gave England the 1-0 lead, but right before the end of the game, Colombia was able to equalize and two scoreless extra play periods completed. 
before we were driven to penalty kicks. Early on, England had a miss that looked like it might spell their doom. But two Columbia misses and a final goal by England gave them the advantage. And they were celebrating. While Columbia tried to understand just what had gone wrong. Later, Valderrama, a star of the 1994 World Cup, would point to a disparity by the referees in calling fouls for Colombia compared with England. But by then the goals were counted, the score was finalized, and the results could no longer be disputed. And even if they could, they wouldn't be overturned. Um, It was difficult to listen to the discussion afterwards in the ways that it demeaned some of the excellent gameplay. These players fought their hearts out, they played with passion, and their intention was to win. They were not involved in the decisions made or the fouls that were were not called and their game in the end should be about what they did on the field how hard they fought and what they attempted whether they were successful or not Um, those are the parts that I'm going to be taking with me and I'm hoping that when the discussions of fouls and the arguments are done that both the players and witnesses will remember a really impressive game that was contested and at times contentious and showed us just how great a World Cup game can be, especially one with severe consequences that dictate what a team's future might look like for the next four years. Oh, thank you. Thank you again for listening to Storytelling with Seth. Whether you're listening on Anchor, Radio Public, Breaker, iOS, Google Play, or one of the many other platforms available, I appreciate you taking the time to listen. And if you're one of those generous supporters, thank you. If you didn't know, you can support my podcast while you're listening to this recording. Feel free to take a look for the link that says to support me. should be a really simple little button. And if you're having any trouble, don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. And I'll make sure that I'll do my best to help. But you're listening. Your continued support is what makes these podcasts possible, and I couldn't do it without you. So, thank you again, not only for listening, but for your generous support, and for all the different platforms that you listen to Storytelling with Seth. I look forward to sharing my next story with you soon.